This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Well, lots of exciting things are happening. D.C. and Baltimore are going to the birds. <laughs> the electric scooters have arrived. And people are saying, is this like the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, where we have the invasion of the birds? They just sort of crash land wherever they want. They that just seems go to be where part of the went. problem. Also coming up on today's show, the physics of hurricanes, the scam of the week, battery lifetime estimates, and in Profiles in IT, our very first Profile in IT, featuring Rasmus Lerdorf, the man who invented the scripting language PHP. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Well, he dragged himself oh, to work today, isn't that great? he did a good job. We mm-hmm. got an email from Stu in Kilmarnock. Dear Doc and Jim. Is Stu one of your new best friends? Oh, yeah, We he hear is. from him all the time. Yeah, Stu, Stu is a very nice boat. And, <laughs> and, and this is the thing, Jim. Stu is a boat? No, Stu... Owns a oh, very... Stu owns a boat. And what I've discovered is the best <laughs> boat you can have is a boat it's... owned by someone else. Exactly <laughs> right. That's, that's true. You don't have to pay for it. That's right. That's perfect. Dear Doc and Jim, I'd like to buy a satellite phone for use on my boat in case of emergency. I mean, Stu's got a big boat. He has something. He goes out into into blue waters. What are some good options? Love the podcast, Stu and Kilmarnock. Well... Stu, I think uh, satellite phones are not bad. You got shift to shore radio, but satellite phones. She you got know, a shift to shore. She. Yeah, you got satellite phones are not too bad, but you've got to have the right coverage. Okay, ah. the right coverage with the satellite. So let me give you three of the networks you got. Inmarsat. Now, Inmarsat satellites they work best if you are between the fiftieth degree latitudes. You know, you go up fifty degrees and south fifty degrees. Be- the 50-degree north and south latitudes. You need to check your lawn and latch, eh? Yeah, because in other words, it doesn't cover the north and south pole. Ah. And the closer you get to the equator, the better the coverage is on on Inmarsat. Now, the reason is is that their satellites are cir- circulating, their geosynchronous circulating around the equator. Is there triangu- triangulation going That's on, right. too, Shane? Well, there is some triangulation. <laughs> and they have th- only three satellites. And so the further ah. you are away from the uh, equator, the, the weaker the signal. So you can just go up to the plus or minus 50 degrees to the north and south latitude. Now, that would be... that's a, Many sailors use that because that covers... Most of the waters there where you know where 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 sailors sail because you, you stay away from the poles where it's just cold. Then you've got iridium. <laughs> you got the iridium system. Iridium is global coverage. It includes even the poles. Huh. It has not three satellites but sixty six satellites. They are in low Earth orbit and they're just and so there's always an iridium satellite somewhere to be found. However. Uh, if you have a long talk on an Iridium one, because one satellite drifts in and another one drifts out, so you can't talk more than about 10 minutes because you got to shift satellites. Whereas in the case of Inmarsat, 
you don't you're not shifting so satellites do you all actually the time. have to end the call and start again because you've changed it, it doesn't automatically hand it, off it doesn't hand off that's one of the little disadvantages of then you've got global star it's limited to sort of the north american area they only have 40 satellites they're in they're in low earth orbit it's not a global system even though they call it global star <laughs> it's not global they only have 40 so those are the three so Stu, Partial global star. So here are your three phone options using the three networks. You've got Iridium Extreme 9375. That's a satellite phone that has integrated GPS as well as an SOS button. That's really, if something's going bad on your boat, you just want to hit that button. <laughs> you, you, don't want to, you don't want to have to be dialing. You just want to hit the big the big red button. You mean 911 doesn't that, work out at sea? No, no. That Out at sea, it's not 911. It's called SOS. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and this uh, this Iridium Extreme 9570 works works globally. Now the nice thing is it's got GPS, and there and it leaves a, a GPS breadcrumb trail, so people can track you and they can see as you're moving around the seas in your in your travels, they can see where you've been. So the Iridium system it has got a lot of safety features. Now it lets you send and receive text messages, email. You can get voicemail. Uh, you can use it as a mobile hotspot, but here's the deal: the data speed is only 2.4 kilobits per second. Hmm. So really, you need to send short messages because the, it's really not made for you know for major internet connection. Battery lasts about four hours. Now the phone costs $1,157. Now I used to <laughs> think I used to think that was expensive until until I, the iPhone's a thousand dollars. So right. so it costs about as much as an iPhone X. Not not bad. Now, if you, the monthly plan, you want to get a monthly Wave Runner plan, you get 90 minutes a month for $100, 90 minutes of talk for $100, and any additional minutes, $1.54. So that would be one option for you if you want to really have a global coverage of Iridium. Now, if you're going to go to Inmarsat, you've got the Inmarsat's iSat Phone 2. Now, that's rugged. It's splash-resistant. It's a satellite phone great for marine use. In fact, they designed it for marine use. Inmarsat really views themselves as a network for boaters. So this particular one is waterproof. It's really made for boaters. Now, the InstaPhone 2, it's got dust-resistant, shock-resistant, splash-resistant. It withstands 90% humidity. The battery life is good for about 8 hours of talk time and 160 hours in standby. The phone has voicemail, text messaging, email messaging. It also has built-in GPS and an emergency button to send a distress text to a prearranged number at your location. Now the in, now that phone costs six hundred and thirty-four dollars. So it's a little bit cheaper, and but if you want to get the Insta Phone Mid Plan, it costs about sixty-five dollars a month for thirty minutes, with extra minutes at a dollar five. And then the final one is Global Star. So if you're only sailing around where the Global Star network uh, covers, that's going to be centered around North America. Uh, the Global Star GPS 1700 is low spot, low lower priced. Uh, it uh, the thing is the Global Star is more of a voice kind of phone. It doesn't send or receive SMS messages. There's no GPS, um, but it has very good voice quality because those 40 satellites are connected to cell phone ground stations. So it's a very good voice phone. And so it's got also good voicemail. The Global Star Orbit, you get 200-minute plan for around $100 a month with $0.99 cents 
uh, for each additional minute. That's around $500 on Amazon. But this Global Star, I think, is less of an emergency phone and more just like a, a phone to talk. So I think you're either going to want to go with the iSat Phone 2 or the Iridium Extreme 9517. So uh, the um, uh, I had a question, and it's already gone. Wow. Um, so uh, I guess the, the point people may be saying, well, why do you need a, 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 a satellite phone at sea? Well, there's no cell towers out there. There, there are no cell towers out there. I mean, there, there is ship-to-shore uh, radio, mm-hmm. but when you're out in the middle of the ocean the, for ship-to-shore radio to work, you, it's got to bounce off the ionosphere, so the, the, the atmospherics have to be right, to, right. You know, to, you know, for that to work. The, uh, <clears throat> ship-to-shore radio is basically just... It's it's a long wire radio. It's bas- yeah it's, yeah basically you use your mast as as as, a, as basically a, um, a you know a half dipole antenna using the uh, using the ocean as the ground plane mm-hmm. and yeah and so you you basically it's it's, it's just basically a, a ham radio. Now will will five G communications change this? Will five G be able to you know span five, five, large bodies of water five g has nothing to do with that. nothing to do no, with no. it okay five g you've got to be in a congested area five it's G, still cell phone yeah it's still a cell phone but what in order to get higher bandwidth with with 5g you, you need more spectrum mm-hmm. so they're pulling in microwave spectrum all sorts of low frequency spectrum as well as the standard spectrum they're knitting it all together they're bundling all this available spectrum up to get gigabit speeds so the 5G is really more efficient use of the leftover spectrum to get more throughput because it's all about bandwidth and throughput. Okay. That's 5G. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Well, uh, well I guess I could say it, the throughput is so good on the 5G that now Verizon is offering a 5G connection to your home. So you don't have to have a cable connection. And the bandwidth is is a gigabit bandwidth straight to the home without cable. Wow. So they're looking at competing with the cable companies that have that have run cable all over the place and think they have a monopoly. Verizon Could- comes in with 5G with all this extra bandwidth, and bingo, there's competition with the cable company. I was going to say, could this be the last nail in the coffin? It could, Well, I, competition is good. It won't mm-hmm. be the last nail in the coffin, but it will be the key to lower prices. Okay, that's competition, good. That's important. Competition brings lower yep. prices. Now we got an email from, let me see here, we got an email from Jim in the studio. What? Ho, ho, ho. Dear Doc, I'm setting up a payment system on my phone. What is better, PayPal or Venmo? You know, I have many services to offer, so I get payments. You get them you know, everywhere. I get them everywhere I go, yes. You'll accept money from I'll anyone. Accept any, yes. You'll accept money from anyone. Both have interesting but different features, Jim in the studio. Well, pay, Jim, PayPal is a very long-standing and trusted payment service that actually created the entire digital wallet category. I mean, it was uh, PayPal was started back was went public back in 2002, actually. And then Venmo is the new, the new age digital wallet, and it's become very popular with millennials. In fact, they now have the verb to Venmo. Would you Venmo <laughs> your payment to me? <laughs> you know, it's very millennial to speak uh-huh. that way. Would you Venmo your payment to me? Now, PayPal went public 2002. Venmo was created in 2012. PayPal saw competition, so they bought it in 2013. So now Venmo is actually a uh, a subdivision of PayPal. Now Venmo is part digital wallet and part social media feed. 
So the app asks for comments on every transaction. Oh, dear Lord. You know, like if you, you know, you're going to transfer money for you know dinner tonight. You say, "Wow, well, wasn't a uh, great was thing. dinner? I just love the chicken." Or and so there's and so you <laughs> so you have like a little, you you have like comments and kind of social media. It's like newsfeed style, and and it's really for friends who are who want to who want to you know pay each other and you know and then and then share their comments about mm-hmm. whatever whatever they're doing. So it it's really social media and. Um, combined with payment transfer and it's really designed for friend-to-friend payment transactions so like m- most stores will not take venmo but almost but many stores will take paypal so paypal is really linked up with all these financial institutions it's like the old it's trust- like venmo with gray hair that's right venmo it's like trust it's it's like the old it's like it's like a it's like a, a gray-haired banker I was compared gonna say, to, it's like com- going down to the bank yeah, it's like going down to the bank and and see all the young millennials look at PayPal and they say, well, PayPal, that was that's that's just like Facebook. My parents use it, so I'm not going to use it. Mm-hmm. So they use Venmo. That's kind of what that is. Now the, the the thing there is one significant difference in addition if you're if you're transferring money between friends, it turns out that Venmo is completely free. Now, now both of them actually charge a three percent transaction fee on on credit card charges because that's just a pass through, but if you've got a debit card where they just debit it from your bank account, uh, there there is no three percent charge on that, and Venmo doesn't charge anything. So if your friends all have debit cards, you can do the transfers completely free of charge. Whereas if you're using PayPal. PayPal is going to charge 2.9% on the transfer, whether it is a credit card or a debit card. So if you and your millennial friends are mostly using um, um, debit cards, Venmo is definitely the best way to go. Huh, good. Okay, we got an email from Betty in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm retired and need a low-cost mobile phone to stay connected. Now, most of the plans are way beyond my budget. I mean, I rarely use my phone. Mostly, just gives me conductivity when the electricity goes out in the house, and my and I and I can't call out. What are my best options, Betty and Fairfax? Well, Betty, unlimited high data speeds, video streaming, mobile hotspots are now standard for most cell phone plans, and seniors like you really don't need all those extras. You just want a regular old phone that's going to work. Now, there are a couple of really good plans for you. T-Mobile has a plan which is only three dollars a month. And that gives you 30 minutes of talk and 30 text messages. And the phone is around $60. Or if you've got a compatible device, though, you can use your, your own phone. Now, you will have to pay for the $20 SIM starter kit, whether you bring your own phone or buy a new one. Because, because T-Mobile is GSM, so you need a SIM card. But really, if you are just having it there for the emergency phone call whenever the power's down, $3 a month is not bad. No. And you could probably get an old phone from one of your kids and, and just use it for that. AT&T has another plan. Now, it's $2 a day, but only if you use it. So if you actually never use your phone for like for a whole month, there's no charge. But if you use it one day, it's $2 for that one day. But then for that one day, you have, can have unlimited calling and texting for that one day. And then it's, it's $2 a day. But if you're always... Like if you're using your phone frequently, you, you, you could end up getting $60 a month for that if you use it every day of the month. So, um, And that's prepaid, so you got to charge the account. Probably for your case, T-Mobile is better. But here's the problem. T-Mobile does not have uh, as good a coverage as, as AT&T. 
So it could very well be you've got to check the coverage in your house and pick pick the network that has the best coverage. And AT&T has better coverage, by and large, than Sprint. Now, we got an email from Jim in Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm going to on a trip to Europe and Asia, and I'd like to take my cell phone along. How should I prepare for this trip? Love the show. Jim in Bowie. Well, Jim, when you're traveling, you've got to have a GSM phone. That's like a global system for mobile, GSM. That's the Europe- it's like a satellite phone. No, yeah, no, 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 it's it is. <laughs> it's like, that's like the European standard. And then the American standard made by Qualcomm is CDMA, Code Division Multiple Access. So GSM was a technology they set up in, uh, in, uh, in you know, many, many years ago. And they, and they basically, time division, they, they basically separate the signal between all the cell phones using time division multiplexing. That's an old standard that they had in Europe. And then CDMA is co-division multiplexing. So they're, so they're two different techniques. But that, that means they're basically two different standards. But if you go around the world, GSM is the dominant one. So you're going to need a GSM phone. Now, most phones support GSM. You know, of course, T, T-Mobile, Sprint, AT&T are all GSM. Verizon is CDMA. But the good news is, like if you have a Verizon iPhone, it's got both CDMA and GSM. So, you know, so it's a, it's a global phone. Now, when you travel and if you want to use a local number, a local phone number, which means you have to swap out the SIM card and buy a SIM card for the local carrier, and you want to make certain that your phone is unlocked so that it will accept a SIM card from another carrier. And AT&T is really stinky about this. They, 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 just, they just don't like to unlock their phones, but they will if you bug them enough. They especially don't like to unlock the phone if, you've got, if you're on a two-year contract. But I understand if one year the contract is passed, you can convince them to unlock the phone before the full two years is up, mm-hmm. or if you're a long-term AT&T customer. Now, the nice thing is Verizon's, their SIM card is unlocked out of the gate. So I don't have any issues with that. Now, when I travel, I, I, there's one thing about these free Wi-Fi networks that are everywhere, especially in hotels. People hack into them, and then they, they try to get into your device. So whenever I'm on public Wi-Fi, I use a VPN. And, and I'm telling you, they target, the hackers target five-star hotels because they're, they're executives there, and that is a target-rich environment. So even if you're on a hotel Wi-Fi, you want to use a target-rich environment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they, they follow the money. They follow the money. And so I use ExpressVPN on my phone. It, it costs me about $100 a year, and I just simply, I simply toggle the VPN turns on. The other nice thing is that with my VPN, I can be in India, and it looks like I'm in New York. So that means I can watch my Netflix movies. That's another, that's another side benefit. Another, another shirt scam. Now, you want to in- install your favorite voice over IP messaging service because when you're on Wi-Fi, you want people to call you, and you want to be able to call them. So I like to use Viber and WhatsApp. I still have Skype on my phone, but I don't use it much more. Now, many people use Facebook Messenger I just don't like Facebook. I don't touch Facebook Messenger, but a lot of people use that. Yeah. And you can use, you can use the video calls or voice calls. But WhatsApp and Viber are nice because they can just call you. They can call your phone using the WhatsApp or, or Viber number, and it just opens up. You don't have to have the app opened up, and it'll, your phone will just ring as normal. Now, the other thing is bring an adapter for the different, um, you know, the different kind of plugs. And don't use these USB charging stations because... There have been cases where, especially these public USB charging stations like an airport, people have modified them. And then what they do is they go into your cell phone through the USB port and they copy your data. Mm-hmm. But if you use, if you actually plug it into the wall with an actual plug, they can't do that. So I always have a plug. I don't use the USB. 
Now, you could get an international calling plan. If you don't want to mess around with all of this stuff, you could get an international calling plan. And sometimes I do that if I'm on a 10-day trip, and I'll get the, the plan from Verizon. AT&T has it, too. It's $10 a day. So if you use the the phone in one day, they charge you $10. And for that day, you got unlimited voice and unlimited data. But if you don't use it the next day, they don't charge you. So so you only are charged whenever you use it. And if, and if you're on Wi-Fi most of the time, then you're you are you are um, you know you're not charged. So the other thing that I do, I go to the carrier and I set up Wi-Fi calling. Now Wi-Fi calling has to be enabled at your carrier. So what Wi-Fi calling does, as soon as your cell phone logs into a Wi-Fi hotspot, it registers itself with the carrier. So if somebody calls your regular phone number, just like they're calling you normally, not knowing you're out of the country, it will go to that Wi-Fi router and straight to your cell phone, and you can answer the phone in a normal way and not be charged any minutes. So Wi-Fi calling is really good. So if you're on a, if you've got a lot of Wi-Fi there and you've got Wi-Fi calling enabled, and you've got your voice over IP messaging apps, you may be able to survive quite nicely without having any, um, any, any phone card set up or any calling when you're, when you're outside of the area. The one final thing I would suggest is your phone will download emails automatically. And if you're on data roaming, it will cost you an arm and a leg. So what you want to do is you want to turn off um, data for roaming you want to sort of data for when you're roaming and you can go in there with your settings so you won't find out that you've got a you know a thousand dollar bill because you downloaded all these emails mm -hmm. listen we love your emails email us at tech talk at stratford.edu we'll get back with you as soon as we can it's saturday morning and you're listening to tech talk radio heard on federal news radio part of the federal news network 1500 a.m 1035 fm hd2 and 1039 fm hd2 on the web at stratford.edu If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk. We're in the virtual faculty lounge, and we have a new segment. 
Profiles in IT. It turns out that almost everything in information technology has been started by an individual, and it was started with a very simple idea. Do almost, I get extra money for that? Oh, that's impressive. I, I think you should. I Thank think you. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, t we'll check with WTWP management on that. Okay. I already know the answer. <laughs> so we're going to talk about PHP. Which, Excuse me? PHP is a scripting language which is actually runs on a server. Now, a scripting language allows a web page to deal with, with the database. So what happens is that if you write a page in PHP, it'll have commands that talk to a database. It will, when you call up that web page, it will grab some data out of the database. It will format it using HTML, which is the formatting language for the web. It will output HTML with the data from the database, throw it at your browser, and your browser displays it. In other words, the page is formatted on the fly. It's actually what they call server-side scripting because the web server is doing the scripting. Well, PHP stands for PHP Hypertext Preprocessor. And um, it's actually open source code, but it's an interesting history of where this got started. It was started by Rasmus Lerdorf. He was the creator of PHP. He's Italian, right? No, no, no. <laughs> he was born in Greenland. Oh, okay. He was born in Greenland. He grew up in Denmark in Canada and is a systems design engineer with an engineering degree from University of Waterloo. And uh, Lerdorf has his own website, Lerdorf.com. And you go to the site, I mean, this guy's really open source. I mean, he's got pictures of every house he's ever lived in. He's got pictures of his, of his hot tub. He has places, 511, too much info. He's got every place that he's ever visited, every trip that he's ever been on. His, his whole life is available in pictures. He's really quite an interesting, uh, interesting guy. Well, what happened was he was, he was on the original uh, uh, development team for the Apache web server. That's the open source web server that's connected with Linux. And he won, and when he created his personal web page back in 1993, almost, that's almost 14 years mm -hmm. ago, he made, he actually used a Perl script to actually do the back end processing, and he created a bunch of Perl script uh, uh, subroutines that uh, at that time was called CGI, Common Gateway Interface, C, uh, CGI routine, so you could actually use the, uh, use the Linux operating system, uh, the, the scripting within the Linux operating system to manipulate data and dynamically create uh, web pages. Well, he created these applications, and they were very nicely formatted, nicely done, and friends found out about it. So then he released more and more of these applications. Then later, <clears throat> the next year, 1994, he actually added a tool for parsing or for interpreting SQL database uh, commands, a structured query language database commands, and included that with version 2. Now, originally, PHP stood for personal home page. Ah. Originally. But you see, that's just That's too just way simple. too simple, right. Yeah, so when he turned it over to the uh, open source community, well, <clears throat> there's kind of a history of this. He, the guy really wasn't out to make money. He's sort of the open source mentality. What I create, I'm going to give back. It's 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 really a, a giving a giving back and mentality in the, the open source gives you a warm fuzzy feeling. <laughs> it sure does. Oh crap! These computers—they're <laughs> so naughty and so complex. I could pinch them. <laughs> That's a really giving back. That attitude. is. Yes. Yeah. By 1997, PHP was being used on over 50,000 websites worldwide, 
and it was getting a little bit big for Erasmus just to manage himself. So he turned it over to a core development team of four guys. He called them the Benevolent Junta. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and, uh, That's got an ominous sound it to it. It does. But, but you, you just can't make it totally open because you'll get garbage code. You've got to have somebody who's really has some discipline in it. And uh, then a couple of Israeli programmers, Zeef Zaraski and Andy Gutman, uh, developed PHP version 3 and PHP version 4. By 1998, PHP was on 100,000 unique domains on the Internet. By 1999, 1 million unique domains were using PHP. Today, over 15 million domains are using PHP. PHP is extremely easy to learn. Now, when he turned over the open source community, they like to have these recursive names where the acronym is built into the name itself. So they call it PHP Hypertext Preprocessor. So the P in PHP stands for PHP. That's right. That's so, right. so the P stands for PHP, then Hypertext is H, and the preprocessor is P. So it's a recursive name that that these open source guys seem to just love. I am smart. I am smart. S-M-R-T. But, but I mean, S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> but for those of us in the know, we know that it just stands for personal home page. There you go. Right. <laughs> so PHP is actually easy to learn. It's very, very easy to learn. It's very well structured. It, they have very simple commands to talk to a to talk to a database, a structured query language database. You know what that is? SQL, that structured query language. It it back in the old days, they had all of these databases and if you'd want to say query a database, in other words, ask the database how many people uh, live in Bethesda, Maryland. You would query it for the field fixed at Bethesda, Maryland, and then how many records do you get? That would be a query. Everybody had a different way of asking the database the question. And people were just fed up with all these different syntax, state, different syntax used for statements. So they all got together and they said, why don't we have a single method for querying the database, a single set of commands? So they created structure query language, SQL, so all the databases use the same commands. So anyway, PHP has all the commands built into it to talk to, uh, to, to SQL, and, and I like to use my SQL because it's free. And my my SQL actually is scalable up to thousands of users. If you go to millions of users, you probably want to go to an Oracle database or something, something which is more scalable. But for most applications, MySQL is good. So if you want to get an interactive, data-driven website, Learn PHP, learn MySQL, and put it on an Apache server, and play around with it. It's really easy to learn, and so I really do love that. So I guess the conclusion is, is that Rasmus Lerdorf is a man with a vision, and he wanted to share it via open source. If you want to learn more about Rasmus, go to his website at lerdorf.com, L-E-R-D-O-R-F.com. It's got his bio there got pictures of his wife, pictures of his kids, every house where he's lived. He, he lived in Dale City. You can look at his Dale City house. And uh, he's just a nice guy. And most of the open source people are really nice guys. And so concludes today's episode of Profiles in IT. <laughs> it's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. On the web at stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. 
IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thank you for tuning in this Saturday morning to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. It is time to play the pop quiz, your chance to turn knowledge into free food. We just listened to the very first Profile in IT ever, which aired on June 2nd, 2007. It featured Rasmus Lerdorf, who is a computer programmer who developed the programming script PHP, which was originally known as Personal Homepage. Lerdorf has his own homepage, oddly enough, Lerdorf.com, and there he will show you pictures of his wife, his kids, his bio, and every place he's ever lived. One of those places happens to be here in the Washington area. Today's question, tell me, where that place is. Where is that house located? Wow, Jim, that's really a tricky question. If you at home know the answer, you can turn your knowledge into two tickets for fine dining at any of the Stratford University dining rooms here in the Washington area. But first, you must pick up your device and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If your personal homepage is in... Canada. Well, dial us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And of course, the international line, 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls right now. Let's talk about scam of the week. This is battery lifetime estimates. Have you ever noticed that laptops promise these fantastic battery lifetimes anywhere from 15 to 24 hours? But you're likely to only get 10 hours on them. Now, what's wrong with these things? Uh, Are they lying? Or are you just not using your machine properly? Well, manufacturers are not lying. They're just using the most unrealistic benchmark possible. 
Now, if you look close, the benchmarks always say up to ah, 16 hours. Your mileage may vary. That's right. Up to 16 hours. It's like saying it's like your internet connection up to 100 megabits per second. <laughs> You may win up to $1 million. That's right. And so uh, and so the manufacturers not promise 16 hours. They promise up to 16 hours. So if you get two hours, they're still truthful. Now, actually, what they do, here's the secret. It's all about video playback. It turns out that all of these laptops have basically um, have basically video video processors in them. The video processors are very, very low power. So what they do is they turn on... A video, then it and they start it playing back. They turn the screen down to a very low level. They put the video on repeat, and they just sit there and don't do anything and let the video play. It is the lowest, lowest possible power output because the 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 video processor hardly uses any power and the screen is very low. And they just let it sit until the laptop dies, and that's what they report as the battery lifetime. Hmm. And then if you read the small print. They'll say, this is using a video operator. Now, it turns out that if you're doing just regular stuff, it doesn't last that long. Right. So, like, uh, for instance, if you would take a, if you'd use a real benchmark, for instance, let's take the, let's take the Microsoft uh, Surface 2. They claim it has a 17-hour battery life. But a Nantech found that if you are browsing the web and just doing normal stuff with it, it lasts 9.7 hours. Hmm. So, they're really not lying they're just kind of bending the truth. Bending the truth, yes. Today I got to the uh, studio a little bit quicker, and I decided to ride around on the bird on the way to the studio this morning. Uh huh. And, and and we have we already have theme mu- music for you. Oh yeah. So I uh, I I'd already had my ba- I had already had my account. So I found a bird scooter. Uh huh. And I've been tooling around the sidewalks around the studio for about half an hour on this uh, little scooter here, uh-huh. having just a lot of fun. And they go fast. They do go fast. When you're on the sidewalk, you can get up to 15 miles an hour, which is too fast for me. But 15 miles an hour on the roadway is a little bit too slow for the road, so you don't know where you're going to go. But I brought the bird to the studio, and I did what you're not supposed to do. I brought the bird into the studio with me. I didn't leave it outside. No, you didn't. Okay, so what we're going to do now? We're, we're going to try to uh, we're going to try to ride this thing down the hallway. So I'm Jim, gonna is gonna, Jim is going to ride the st- <laughs> this right, thing down the hallway. He's going to bring it over. He's going to bring it over, and I've got I've got to scan it and uh, and open up the account right now. It's beeping because it's it hasn't been activated. And it's oh. so you just have to lift it up. Lift it up. Well, no, you can just pu- push it over. I did, well, you know, there's a lot of resistance on this. Oh thing. yeah, they. So now what I'm going to do? Just a minute here. Okay. I need I need to scan this. Oh, you, need to, you need to scan the machine. I've got to scan, scan it here. Just now I'm. Let's see. I'm. Where is it? Right here, right. The oh, yeah, QR there. code. I'm scanning the QR code now. I'm going to unlock it. It's unlocked, okay. and you're ready to go. And this is this is the throttle here. Oh, right there. Okay. That's the throttle. Okay, don't, don't, and this don't, is the brake. Oh, that's important to know. Okay. Okay. So, so now. Periscope. Now Jim is Jim is now on the scooter. I, if he hits that throttle in here at 15 miles an hour, he's going to crash into the wall. Hey, he's gone. He's gone down the hallway. He's not doing anything. No, it's. No, it has to. It, he's you, not doing anything. Well, why don't you come back here I'm and I'll. Coming back. Yeah, you come back. I'm going to test it because it shows that it's actually oh, active. God. 
<laughs> no, just just a minute here. All right, you you take. I, okay, I will, now now see this is the thing here. I will do the 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 play by play of this. Oh, this ought to be. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's What's Marianne's number? So yeah, when you hit the is, wall, I can call her. This is this is. You know. You killed it. You killed the no, bird. No, I'll bet that it won't. It won't run inside inside <laughs> of a building without GPS. It won't. It won't do it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lock this thing now because I I, I paid a dollar for that. But oh man. <laughs> Well, that's no good. So what, what happened was we tried to ride it inside. Apparently this thing, this thing. It's going to blow up now. This thing. Oh, it, we canceled the ride. So it was, it was the, the ride was canceled, but it wouldn't go when we were inside without the GPS well, on. That's no fun. It isn't any fun. So after the show, we're going we're gonna to take it out. So this, this is actually quite a bit of fun. I was riding around for, you know, 15 minutes or so on the bird before getting to the show. So now, I now, guess you could say the bird just flipped us the bird. It did. It did. And it's apparently this thing is built in. If you're inside a building and they don't have a clear GPS, it won't it won't let you ride it. That's no good. It is no good, you know. That's what a shame. Our experiment was crushed. Was crushed, crushed, crushed. So I guess the, I guess the, the message is you can't have a bird's nest inside the building. No, you can't. And, and you're not supposed to bring it in, but I wanted to bring it in because, you know, I captured a bird and I wanted to prove it. So now, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it out. I'm, we'll take it out after the show and we'll, uh, Jim will take a, take it a spin around the block. <laughs> yeah, it's been nice <laughs> knowing all of you. That's right. All right, so let's talk about something else that let's, can kill let's you. Let's talk about the physics of hurricanes. Yeah. That's the physics of hurricanes because, of course, we've had that huge hurricane, uh, Florence, this this uh, this week, and uh, and I think people, it's worthwhile knowing what is a hurricane, how do they start, how are they powered. Now, it turns out that hurricanes, the turbulence, which is the root cause of hurricanes, actually travels from uh, travels from the west coast of northern Africa in the jet stream that comes from the east to west, and any turbulence in that jet stream when it gets to the U.S. can result in a hurricane because you have to have, it just can't, it just can't be laminar flow. There has to be some kind of turbulence to seed the hurricane. So it's funny that the wettest storms found in weather originate over one of the driest places in the world, the Sahara. Mm -hmm. Well, by the way, the name Sahara that just simply means desert in Arabic. Really? The it, desert desert? Yeah, that's a desert desert. Yeah, it's, it means desert in Arabic. So these small turbulences travel from east to west in the jet stream. Now, hurricanes form near the equator over warm water. Now, the term hurricane is only used for large storms that form over the Atlantic Ocean or over the Eastern Pacific Ocean. The generic scientific term for these storms is a tropical cyclone. So you hear people talk about cyclones and hurricanes. They're, they're interchangeable. It's one and the same. Uh, hurricanes are one of the most powerful natural phenomena we see, and they get their power from the condensation of water. When water condenses, water vapor condenses into water droplets, it creates power. So the latent heat of vaporization of water is 2.2 million joules per kilogram. And that means it takes 2.2 million joules of energy to boil one kilogram of water. But the reverse is also true. If you've got a kilogram of water condensate, 
it creates 2.2 million joules of energy that are available for the hurricane. Now, there are four ingredients that a hurricane has to have in order to function. It needs large area of warm ocean water, preferably at least 27 degrees Celsius. Warm ocean water. You've got to be away from the equator. You've got to be at least five degrees away from the either, e- equator either, either way. You could be at 10 degrees, but you can't be right on the equator because it's the, the otherwise it won't, the hurricane won't rotate. Now, you have to have vertical stability. You have to have vertical instability. That means you've got to have a low pressure at the sea, sea level, and high pressure up high. So you've got a low pressure zone at the sea level, and you have to have a minimum vertical shear. You can't have your hurricane being broken up by by sheer by sheer winds that sort of break the break the uh, break the eye up. So if you've got minimal vertical shear, you got vertical instability. You're at least five degrees off the equator, and you got large ocean water. You've got all the ingredients for the hurricane. So what happens is the first thing that happens is that once they get begin to get self organized out of that turbulence, warm air rushes in to the center of the uh, of the hurricane along the water level, and it starts going up that column. It's like a chimney. And that warm water vapor, as it goes up the chimney, it cools off and it condenses. And once it condenses, it, it generates a lot of heat, and that heats up the air. And once that hair gets even hotter, it just shoots up the chimney really fast. And that sucks in more air from the bottom. And you got this chimney effect, just like a fireplace. Now, what causes it to spin is this. As the warm air is coming in from the bottom, it's coming in from the bottom, something called Coriolis Coriolis force, which is caused by the rotation of the earth, causes the air which is rushing to the middle to sort of rotate. We're in the northern hemisphere, it's counterclockwise. Mm -hmm. If we're in the southern hemisphere, it's clockwise. So all the tornadoes that we see are in the northern hemisphere, so they're all... They're all they're all counterclockwise. They're all counterclockwise. So that's really the that's really the um, and so now what happens is once you get this this movement this chimney and you get the air coming at the bottom and it comes coming out the top you have to you 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 have to keep the the eye so it's sealed so that the air rushes out the top if the if if the eye if the eye wall gets a hole in it and and air pressure leaks out then what happens the tornado or the hurricane loses power, so that's, it becomes disorganized. So if the eye wall becomes disorganized due to shear winds, it loses power. But if there are no shear winds and that eye is a, just like a chimney, it just keeps on going up to Category mm-hmm. 5. So there you go. Probably all you wanted to know about the power of hurricanes, and the amazing thing is they all start over in the west coast of northern Africa. The driest the, part of the world. The Sahara Desert. So okay. there you go. So now... You know, one of the things that, you know, people ask in my other job is, so what do you think, how bad is this going to be? And predicting weather is difficult. It is But predicting hurricanes, and because everybody wants to know exactly where it's going to hit and when. And you really don't know. You you just, it's it's very complicated to predict this. mm -hmm. Exactly. So we do have forecasting computer models for hurricane forecasting computer models. They're, They're out there, and there are a number of them. And now this is the basic deal when you've got a when you want to have a model that predicts something you need two things. First of all, you have to have the initial conditions. 
So the initial conditions are you've got to make measurements. What are the, the what are the temperature, pressures, and all the initial conditions? Because those initial conditions, which mean what we have today, is going to we can then move that forward. But you have to start out with some initial conditions. Then secondly, you've got to break up the atmosphere into some sort of little square, little cubes. So you have resolution. So it's a it's a three dimensional grid, and you need to have the initial conditions on each of those little grid points. And the smaller the grid, the smaller the pieces, the more accurate it is. Mm-hmm. And so you might have a grid which is forty kilometers on a side, or it could have like twenty kilometers on a side. But the more grids you have, the more processing power it takes. Look at it as a, a, cur- a current version of a TV. That's right. The, 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 the resolution. The, it's the resolution. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. It's the resolution. And then you've got basic physics where you've got thermodynamics and fluid dynamics that are actually that are that you can describe through differential equations how pressures and temperatures and and air flows through the atmosphere. So you take these physical equations, these differential equations... You have the initial conditions, and then you calculate it, and you've got between the different cells, you'll have boundary conditions where you match the slope and value, you do this big calculation. And so there are a number of ways to do this thing, and there are a number of models, and it turns out that the European Center, the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting, it's the best model for forecasting. Now, the reason it's the best model is that the Europeans have selected a very small grid size, which means it takes a lot of computing power. They also have a more sophisticated physical modeling. They have more more differential equations and more effects have been handled within their model. And that increases the processing power even more. And they have put some supercomputers on this thing. They have spent some bucks to make it happen. And because of their high-resolution model with more sophisticated physics, that tends to be the most accurate model. So if you remember, earlier, they were predicting that it was going to hit up further north. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then all of a sudden they said, well, the European model says it's going to go further south. And, and the European model was exactly was correct, right. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, early on when this thing was still way out in the ocean, and you look at the what they call the, the spaghetti models, right, mm-hmm. which shows all of the possible tracks based yes. on all the possible models. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of them showed it coming right up to Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's the thing. When, when, when these things first start to form and everybody says, oh, my gosh, we're under the gun. Well, it's, it's a week away, and look at where all of the different possible tracks are. And you, and you, you really don't know. And, and there are four global models that, that are in use. You've got the global forecast system, which is run by the National Weather Service. It's got great graphics, a great web interface. You've got the... You've got the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory model, the GFDL, and that's run by NOAA. And uh, that's also got uh, that. That also will predict the intensity of hurricanes as uh, well as their path. So you know, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that we have two U.S. models. Wouldn't it have made more sense if we just put all of our eggs in one basket and come up with one that was really good? It's just that one is NOAA and one is the National that's Weather Service. Just. But that's two different two different so, agencies. They're competing that's with each other. So United States, <laughs> yes. And then you've got the United Kingdom Met Office model. There's a, and they and they call that UK Met, and that's really hard to find in the world. But those are the four dominant ones. And of those four, the European model is the best. The other thing that they do, they create each of these models. They do kind of a sensitivity analysis, and they go to a lower resolution. That's a bigger cell size, and they'll run a lot of different cases to see 
how sensitive the path of the hurricane is to different variations of the initial conditions. Mm-hmm. And it, so it turns out the European model, they run 50 of these cases to sort of get some uh, some sense of the accuracy of their prediction. The U.S. only runs 20, 20 of those cases. In, in every case, the Europeans just spend more money on their money. I was going to say. So it basically comes down to a, a matter of dollars. But I'm, but I'm wondering, if we just had one model in the U.S. and they put all their money together, maybe, right. they, could, maybe they could compete with the Europeans. But we both know that that will never happen. We both know that's never going to happen. And so, so I just couldn't figure out why it was always better. But it, and I've just been noticing this over and over and over again. So let me let me ask you this question. So where where does the data come from that gets ingested into these systems? So they'll they'll take actual they'll actually take ground data. They'll take ground radar data, which will show rainfall. They'll have they might put balloons out to get temperature data. Mm-hmm. They act the initial conditions. They actually have to have actual data. So even when they when they're running this, they've got these planes that fly into the middle the, of. The, I was going to ask about those of the of the hurricane and they'll fly the wall. They're, so that they're gets actually, ingested. They're in? actually gathering data on the hurricane itself and sending that into the models. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly updating the models with better data. But on a normal. You know, hurricanes notwithstanding, on a normal day, they use these for for weather, weather forecasting for every single day, right? They do. This, so, so does he? The, where, so this basically, this is weather radar data that gets ingested, and plus ground stations. Is that what happens? Everything is because it, it. You've got to have a high resolution initial condition. So if you've got a lot of cells, you've got to have the initial condition for every cell, which means you got to have temperature, pressure, wind mm-hmm. speed. All the initial conditions for every cell, well, that takes a lot of work to get all that. I mean, yeah. it's like with balloons, and it's 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 a combination of balloons. It's uh, it, it could be weather satellites. So and, then, I guess they just look at each cell and see whatever's closest to it, and use use and that use, and use that, that, and that, and that's the initial condition. And the Europeans uh, put in better initial conditions, higher resolution initial conditions, and then they'll use the equations. But the equations are not accurate so they could still mm-hmm. only go forward you know maybe you know a few days you know, and, and the further they go forward the less the accurate, less accurate it is. They but they are. but they keep updating the initial conditions to get it better so you know, the app that i have on my phone is um weather bug mm-hmm. and i like that because it has so many weather reporting stations and mostly schools and, and local you know uh things like ballparks and stuff like that so is that data does that get ingested is, is it Whatever they can whatever, find. Whatever they can get, because mm-hmm. I don't think they can get enough data. Mm-hmm. So it is it, as much data as they can get, because you're looking at uh, fluid dynamics and thermodynamic equations, which means you've got to have temperatures, you've got to have wind speed, you've got to have air pressure. So you have to have all of these elements there. You've, you've got to have, if there's precipitation, you've got to have, if there's rain. So you have to have all of that core data, and they put that into these differential equations. And there are prop, there's you know several differential equations. And the thing is, with all of these cell sizes, you got to match the boundary conditions between the cells, mm-hmm. and you, and it's a lot of computation. Okay, so here here's the other question. Uh, you know, and despite you know all of the science, my personal feeling is when you look at these weather apps on your phone, mm-hmm. they're wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, they are. And w- so what what is the, what's the deal? Well. Y- 
here's the thing. Usually people only want to what's 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 the weather going to be like the next day. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that most of the weather apps are pretty good if you want to just know what is the next day. See, that's uh, and so and so there there's not that much variation. But the thing with hurricanes, we want to know what is it going to be like in ten days. Ten days. Mm-hmm. That is tough. The further you try to project it the more sensitive it is to those initial conditions. And that's why they run these sensitivity analyses to see how much variation you get in the path mm-hmm. based on variations of initial conditions. Well, see, here's the thing that I don't uh, – the, the, the weather bug app gives you hour to hour. Mm-hmm. And I swear I look at it so often, and it's wrong a lot of the time. And I don't understand that. Now, the weather people that I work with up at the other place where I work during the week, they swear – and, of course, this is a difficult place uh-huh. – to forecast weather in, mm-hmm. that it's it's the combination of that data along with a person who is familiar with the local weather, um, you know, the intricacies of forecasting mm-hmm. Baltimore, Washington. And they take a look at this data and say, yeah, but in that this area, when that happens, this is what happens. So you're better off getting it from a local weather person. Mm-hmm. But even that... The weather forecast from one TV station to the next varies. It's going to vary. I mean, so what's your feeling about that? Is it a combination of of all of this data and an experienced human getting their 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 hands and their minds on this and saying, okay, this is all great, but this is what I think. Well, it could be, but I, I'm not you, really I'm not really convinced of that. You're not. You, so you're going pure science. Here, I'm going pure science. Let me let me tell you. You know how a weatherman mm-hmm. can be right. Ninety-five percent of the time, they simply say tomorrow's weather is the same as today. <laughs> and if you say that, you are correct ninety-five percent of the time. That's interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. Uh, because it's almost always a continuity from day to day to day. Okay, so do you ever watch TV to get your weather anymore, or, or listen no, to it? You, you get no. it strictly off of wh- which app do you use? I use this. Is it the Weather Channel thing you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, I use about? the Weather Channel app. So what is that called again? I use Storm Radar uh-huh. because it gives me notifications. Like if there's going to be, a, you know, like a squall there out on the bay or something, it, I get notified. So I, I, I so, just, the, so if I go to the App Store and I download Storm Radar, yeah, but it's a product of the Weather Channel and it's free. Okay, it's free. It's I'll got, give that a shot. It's got ads on the bottom. I mean, okay. you, you got to put up with ads, but it's it's kind the, of it's kind of fun to see. But um, but I think. Uh, these models are going to get better, and it's basically it, we're basically limited by co- computational time. So I think as we get faster and faster computers, I think these predictions are going to get better and better. Do you think the United States models will ever catch up with what um, with if, what the European model is? If I mean, if we decide we want to invest in it, uh, I mean, we we let the Europeans get ahead with the Large Hadron Collider because we didn't want to invest in in more accelerators, so mm-hmm. more colliders. So uh, I think maybe we've just let the Europeans win on that. One. That's it for this week. So for one final time, farewell from our studios in Northwest Washington. We will see you next week from our brand new studios in Chevy Chase, Maryland, for more Tech Talk Radio. This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. 
statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program.